0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in.
1: All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Ray Gary, the CEO and founder of iDonate iDonate is the fastest-growing digital fundraising solution for nonprofits to help them do more good in the world. Ray's experience in launching, building, and helping businesses su- succeed spans nearly three decades, including various leadership positions in technology companies. Previously, he served as president of the Venture Capital Group of Coke Industries, one of the nation's largest private companies, where he oversaw numerous technology investments. Ray currently serves as, as an advisory board member of of the Highland Park chapter of K Life, a faith-based ministry for students, he also sits on the board of the Greater Baton Rouge LSU area Young Life Ministry. Here to tell us his story is Ray. So, Ray, my new friend, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, tell me, man. We, you know, we took our kind of stab, what we could gather about you online, and you're, and, and I donate. Uh, but in your own words, how'd you get into this?
0: Well, again, thanks for having me. And uh, a little bit about about the background is. Um, I'm kind of as, what they call these classic halftime guys. I spent the first half of my career almost three decades focusing on, um, you know, just kind of success and, and making money like everybody else and try to climb in the ladder. And then I kind of decided, you know, kind of stepped back and looked at my life and said, you know, how do I want to finish well and what do I want to spend the second half of my life on. And so I really decided to focus on significance and how I could serve others and take the gifts and talents that I had been. And experiences that I had and apply them in a different way. And, and, um, you know, I, I ran it long story, but I ran to some people that were kind of looking at this space and put my venture capital lens on, did the research like any venture capitalist would and saw the opportunity. And, and really out of that, we, we saw a problem, which was, if you looked at giving over the last four or five decades, people give at 2% of their, total income and I, if you kind of step back and look at that you think wow that's not that inspiring and you know could we do something about that and out of that became the mission really first of could we take advanced technology and amplify good hmm. and that became our mission and uh you know there's a lot of good that's being done 470 billion dollars worth it every year in our industry but how could we come alongside these great world changers and amplify their good wow
1: you know i had a um almost the opposite story but not in (laughs) meaning but just in terms of which came first uh Mm -hmm. we mentioned in your in your uh in your opening intro you know about your involvement with young life i start i was a young life leader all through college at clemson university Uh, wow i was in ministry for all of my 20s and helping build a large church in atlanta loved it uh still love it Uh, but i had a similar like half time like right when i was 30 like i think (laughs) there's more I I assumed I'd always be in this, but I think I want to kind of get into the greater business world and make an impact there and uh, even uh, make a decent dollar for the first time in my adult Mm -hmm. life, you know? And so uh, it's fun seeing kind of the different starting points. Uh, But still, you know, where we decided as a company is we wanted to find the intersection of impact and income, where we were paid a fair wage, but it was based on the impact we were making. Uh, It's still a deep value for me. And it sounds like one for you, but you stepped into a place that I imagine at first might feel a little daunting, right? Where it's a huge world. It's a world where, um, you know, there's, like you said, maybe a lot of inefficiencies or opportunity, but I imagine some of that was daunting to figure out where to start. Is is that true?
0: No, no, that that's exactly right. It's, uh, you know, I, I had some really strong experience and I, I was really blessed and fortunate to work with some great leaders and entrepreneurs in, including even Charles Koch, who I got to work very closely with. amazing. And so when you take that kind of mindset and framework of, you know, kind of looking at the world through a set, through a thesis and developing a set of experiments off that, and then you kind of come to the nonprofit world and nothing against the nonprofit world, but you know, they, they sort of lag the for-profit world. I, my point of view was probably seven to 10 years. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's unfortunate. They don't have the resources or the, or the, you know, talented guys like you always, there are not always available. And, and, and it's not so much just the money, it's just the focus. There's such a sense of urgency on changing the world and doing their mission and focusing mm-hmm. on their programs that sometimes the infrastructure and some of the things they need to focus on fall behind. Sure. And, and then on top of that, you have this sort of institutional inertia from, from people that, monitor this industry of saying no you're not going to get a grant unless your ratios are a certain way. Well, those ratios are actually the opposite of what a good business does. <laughs> and, and and so uh and so unfortunately they've kind of got a little of that backwards and that's really, you know, put handcuffs on them.
1: Yeah. Again, I, lo- I love that world. I love the mi- the mission of it, but every industry, every thing has its weakness and that was one that I saw was Man, the inefficiencies and sometimes just the business intellect and uh, and again, like you take someone like me and I, I don't not toot my own horn, but like one of the problems is you can't pay me enough just to live.
0: <laughs> well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that, but I've, I've been involved in Young Life for many, many years and I'm, I'm always amazed that they will govern or choke down what, you know, what they pay somebody. And, and, you know, even, even my friends that are involved, they have the local support of people who want to, you know, give them more, not, not a or not out of market or anything. Right. But we have this sort of scarcity mentality in the ministry sometimes, which yes. is kind of crazy. And I didn't realize how deeply
1: until I look back now and I realized like, oh man, I thought that was a lot, even though we were living hand to mouth, you know, with kids and all that kind of stuff for so long. And again, some people that's their calling and that that's okay. But I had this instinct. I felt like it was God saying like, you could be the lender, not the borrower. Yeah, like you you could apply your skills out in the market, still make an impact, still be faith driven, and you could actually be someone lending money, not just always needing to ask for it, right? Um, yeah. And so I love that you're you're organizing people like that. So uh, when
0: you well, came, well, then and, and and that's what that's why it's easy for me to get up in the morning. I mean, seventy percent of our revenue today probably still is driven by faith based organizations. We we serve other nonprofits, and we're we're happy to do that, but a big portion of our revenue is driven from faith-based because that's where I started the business. Right. And, and um so whether it's faith-based or whether it's not, it's easy to get up every single morning and know that if we're doing our job well, if we're articulating the value, we're making great products that work all the time um, and making their lives more efficient then it is a ministry to me because, because I'm helping these guys do more of their mission. I, as I, as I'm saying my, on my website and my, sort of my mantra is what Martin Luther said, which is, you know, the Christian shoemaker doesn't do his duty by putting little crosses on shoes. He does his duty by making great shoes.
1: Yeah, come on. And,
0: and, and, and so what I like to think is we're we're making great shoes or great boots on the ground for the people that are actually doing the work. And if we do that well, you know, they can change the world. And that that's the role that I think, you know, where God's putting me is to come alongside these guys and equip them.
1: What were the... And I mean this more from a business case, not like uh, tell me about the problems, but like uh, from a business standpoint, what were the problems that you identified coming into the, you know, the the raising uh, funds for cause or organizations? What what did mm. you see? You know, yeah. I had to... Go ahead. No, that's
0: a great that's a great question. You know, when we were when we were raising capital for I Donate, I mean, we're definitely a we wanted to be a for profit business because we we think that's a healthy way to do business. I mean, you know. Th- You, you still have the laws of business when you run a business. I mean, like gravity, there's still gravity, right? And so you still need to make a profit so that you can pay people fairly. You can train people, you can invest in your product and all that. And so we made the decision that there's nothing wrong with that. We don't need to apologize for that. But when you do talk to investors, some that have, you know, an impact minded mindset or, you know, kingdom minded mindset or whatever it may be. They kind of view their wallet as two sides. Well, are you asking for a a grant? Are you asking for an investment? Yeah, and 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 you and you have to reconcile that pretty quickly. That no, you know, we're doing this to make an impact, but we're also doing this to give you a return on your investment. Yes, and and that's okay. And some some people that are in my space in impact investing or whatever you want to call it sort of struggle with that and go back and forth. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I've been I've been really blessed to be around a lot of great business people who are faith minded and they view their world as, no, I'm here to run a great business and make a fair profit. And the more I make, the more I can give away and do good with, but I'm exactly. not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this and not follow the rules of business. You know, no margin, no mission. I'm not going to do this Yes, and, and suspend the rules of business just because I'm wanting to have an impact.
1: Yeah. Again, I, I I don't think it holds true across the board. I think you could probably point to some things. It's like, hey, it's never fair to expect a profit with if the mission is that kind of thing. I think about police work or whatever. It's like, sure, it, it's hard to to know how is that how does that actually make a profit? But for most things, it feels like we've been too lazy. Like if we yeah. think of a good idea, typically it's healthy, and its health is because it actually gives more back than it takes. The business itself, right? that is generating some kind of margin because it's a good idea. It solves a real problem. It adds real value in the world. Uh, and so, you know, again, I'm just curious as a use case, when y'all came in, especially with your, in, you know, your industry experience, things from Coke, would you look at it and say, we could make a difference there. We could do it more efficiently, or maybe we could help, you know, really raise awareness and therefore your mission's getting out there more. Like what were the things that you all kind of focus on?
0: Yeah. I mean, this would be a long conversation. I'm just kind of highlight one or two, but I mean, there were the obvious things you'd think about when, um, um, you saw people in this industry chasing shiny objects and, and, and and I understand why, and it's not a criticism, but their job is so hard and, you know, they've, they wanted, they're so mission-minded. They want to do a good job on programs, but yet they still have to raise money. Mm -hmm. And, it's just hard. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And so when a shiny object would come along uh, they would want to grab hold of it and they would, they would implement it. And I'm speaking about tech, for example. And then all of a sudden they'd wake up three or four years later and they'd have a Frankenstein system in their back office. You know, they'd have multiple silos of data, multiple merchant accounts for reconciling credit card processing, multiple platforms to train on multiple points of integration. And, you know, they created this sort of monster, if you will. And so, you know, that's why we took the platform approach and said, hey, let's kind of take a little bit of a, a Microsoft Office view here. Let's get 95 to 98% of the functionality right across all the forms of digital giving. And let's make that seamless with one UX, one UI, one place to reconcile data, because they don't need another systems integration problem. So that's just one one example of why we took the tech architecture approach we did uh, it was really to try to relieve them of the mess they created on themselves.
1: Ah, that totally makes sense. You've got like six different things you've kind of, like you said, Frankensteined in and you're not even sure. And then maybe you turned over somebody that used to manage it and know it. And now that person has no clue how to make all those systems talk. And so you all brought together a central platform mm-hmm. that could handle all those needs. Is that what Well, what's,
0: is? what's worse is nobody had a holistic view of the donor, which is the most important thing. You know, because they had touch points of the donor in all these different silos and there was never a central place to pull that all together. So that, that's just one example of what we saw. And then like the other one I referenced was there's this institutional inertia and, and you know, not to criticize the the sort of the standards like the guide stars and the charity navigators and the people that, you know, sort of aggregate this data. But there are cri- there is criteria of what it means to get those four or five stars or what it means to that grant writer that says, I'm not going to, uh, you know, or that, that foundation that wants to give you a grant. Well, are you a four star or not? Well, Mm -hmm. when you dig in and look at what it takes to be a four star, they want all your money going to programs. And so they, they sort of discourage investment. And you know, as a business person, you know, you, you can't get the return even on the programs, unless you're willing to invest a little bit in your infrastructure and your people.
1: Interesting. So it's like, they're only willing to give grants to those that are, Showing that they're using, you know, the majority of their money towards the thing they're trying to do, but in, it's actually incentivizing probably a poorly led organization.
0: <laughs> it's, it's incentivizing mediocrity in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. It, well, what did it look like to get the MVP of, of I donate off the ground? Where did you all start and how, what did you get going?
0: Yeah, we, we started, um, you know, this is you, one of the things I think you touched on, uh, when we we're talking about this from a prep standpoint is. You know, what did you do well and what did you not do well? And I think, you know, we all, all of us founders get bit with this lesson because of our DNA is, you know, you want to, you have a big vision and you want to bite off too much of it. And, um, you know, from a practical standpoint, just because of, you know, raising capital and all that, there was only so much we could take, but we probably bit off more than we could chew. And we didn't, we didn't follow some of those good lessons that Mr. Koch taught us about sort of staging in your growth you know, you know, develop a thesis, stage it in, get the flywheel going next stage, next stage, next stage. So, uh, we had a big vision. We had big eyes and we bit off probably a little more than we could chew in the early days and kind of had to catch up to that. Talk to me a little bit about
1: that. I'm always fascinated, you know, learning what you might've learned from greats like him. What do you mean by staging in your growth? I think I understand intuitively, but I'd love to hear more about it.
0: Well, I mean, he, he was, um, you know, he was an MIT trained guy, probably one of the best entrepreneurs in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And his point of view was, you know, you, you always have a thesis about something you're doing and then you set up experiments and you either prove, prove the thesis or not. So in the case of Coke Industries, there may be three or 400 experiments going on at any time. And if they don't prove, he cancels the funding. If they do prove you fund them like mad. Mm. And so that was the application he always used to teach us about investing as well Is you know, what are we trying to prove with this amount of money? And did we prove that or not? And sometimes, you know, people take money and they go, well, we want to go prove 20 things or we want to go do 20 things. And that's not how you get a flywheel going. As you know, the flywheel concept is a one little crank at a time and then it starts spinning hard. Yeah. And it's just as founders, particularly those that sort of are steeped in vision and strategy, It's sort of hard for us to discipline ourselves to sort of frame things in bite sizes because we don't, we're always wanting to get to point four instead of letting one develop at, you know, one, two, three, four.
1: Absolutely. It's like, you can see in your mind what you think is the Uh grand vision. And so let's go, let's go do the grand vision.
0: As (laughs) as I always say, you know, I always tell people, I always push back on them. I say, just because you can put that in PowerPoint doesn't mean you can execute it, you know, and, and nor does it mean you have the talent to execute it sometimes. And also
1: I've just found that my grand vision is lacking data. And so that vision may change when I realize I assumed something that wasn't correct and you don't know that until you start pursuing it piece by piece. Right.
0: Well, that brings up another great point. I mean, this is one of the, probably one of the most significant, I learned so much from a guy like Charles, but one of the most significant things I learned from Charles and working at Coke industries is, you know, they had a framework and it was called, you know, MBM market-based management. And th- you always started with vision and then you went and got talent and then there was an order you went through, you know, incentives and property rights and, and all those kinds of things. But one of the things Charles used to always talk about a lot is it's okay for the vision to change. You know, when you're starting a business as a founder, like to point, to reinforce your point, you're going to learn something you didn't know. Yeah. You know, we, we, we learned so much that we were wrong about That's o but that's Okay. But when your vision or even maybe your strategy changes a little bit where businesses fail, and this is something you should always talk about it, you don't change your talent alongside that. In other words, you say, well, all those guys that I still got, they're really good. They're A players. We're just going to go now in this direction. Well, maybe they've never sold enterprise software before, you know, And, and, and you have to make those really hard, painful decisions that the talent you have may not be the talent for the new vision. Interesting. It doesn't mean that they're bad folks. It doesn't mean they're not talented. It's just that those guys play, you know, cricket, not baseball. Hmm. And, and, and so businesses fail a lot because they're not willing to make those hard changes.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're emotional at that point. It's, it's it's not just the strategy. It's the emotion of, I, I kind of pitched you on this and got you to buy in and spend time doing this. And I just imagine that would be one of the hardest parts, right?
0: Yeah, no doubt.
1: Uh, pivots are always interesting to me, right? Like this idea of, you know, whether lean startup or, you know, flywheel, as we're talking about, like, you got an idea, you got a thesis, how quickly can you prove it, learn from it, update the model, keep going. Um, to me, I always get scared or I'm always curious on like, what are the things that are okay to change and which are the things we should never change? Right. Yeah. Is is that even a
0: way of thinking about it? No, no, no question. I mean, I think mission and values obviously are, are at the core uh, you know our our mission was always solid and and you know we you that 's why it's so important. people think that stuff is just shelfware mm. it's so important to really understand you know your your Simon stuff understand sort of why you started the business and the whole purpose for it even existing and you know while we didn't know what the ultimate thing was going to look like, we knew that taking advanced technology and applying it to in in a way that could amplify the good that was doing was the right place we wanted to be. And we knew that going to work every single day and figuring out how do we apply technology to drive more impact and drive more funds for these guys was the right place to start. Now, you know, whether we focused on this part of the value chain or that part of the value chain, those are things you just, you're you're going to get wrong. You're going to mess yeah. up and, you, and you're and you going to have to maybe, you know, even pivot, even though pivots a is a, is a bad investor word. It's just the reality of learning as you go through this. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. And you try to limit those as much as you can.
1: Yeah. It seems like to me that the how and the where should be very much held loosely, like how mm-hmm. we're going to solve the problem. I don't know. Like we got to hold that loosely based on what mm-hmm. we're going to find out from customers. And as we're trying to implement things and the where, like, like you said, where in the value chain are we best positioned to help? But the why is the thing that, you know, bar a significant event changing a lot of things shouldn't change very much,
0: right? Well, and you know, and you know, one of Steve Jobs' famous quotes is, you know, we don't do market surveys, we invent markets for products. Well, you know, there's there's one of him. There, you right. know, not, <laughs> right. not, not 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 everybody is like him. And sometimes we think that, you know, we know better, but when, when you go out and listen and you you know this. This is a simple lesson that nobody does well just go out and spend time with customers. Just go out and listen. I mean, I I know everybody says that, but few of us do that. Like right now I'm doing this road show where we're launching a new platform at our company and I'm going out and I'm going to all these cities. I'm going to go to a bunch of cities. I'm going to three this week. And in those road shows, we have prospective people and we have existing customers and, with the end of this three and a half, four months that I'm doing this by visiting, you know, 15, 20 cities and being in front of hundreds and of hundred people, who do you think is the smartest person in the company? It's it, it's me. It's not because I'm smart. It's because I just sit there and listen to three or four hundred people tell me what their pain is, what they need, what they're struggling with, and all that. That in, in three months, I'm gonna yeah. be highly valuable to our product. Are there specific questions that you like to ask that helps you get
1: the relevant information you're looking for?
0: Yeah. I mean, I th- I think it's, I think it's traditional ones. It's, it's, uh, you know, what are you struggling with? What, you know, wh- where's your pain? But I, I like to, st- I like to spend a lot of time on the other side because I am a entrepreneur and a kind of a visionary guy. I like to say, if you had this, if you didn't have this constraint, what, you know, what else could you do with your mission? Mm. You know, and, and if you were dreaming about your mission, you know, if, if, if we could come up with a plan of how you could, you know, double, triple or 10 X this, You know what's that like and what's the constraints that hold you behind so Mm. i like to really try to encourage or inspire people to kind of think outside their four walls a little bit and then they start thinking about well you know i can't do this because this is a barrier i can't do this because this is a constraint and then that sort of opens up a conversation about how to eliminate those things
1: man that's really interesting it reminds me of um i can't remember who the gentleman was i was interviewing a few weeks ago but he was talking about like sometimes when we just think from point a to point b point B is so close to where we are now that you still think inside of your current reality. And so you make similar mistakes. Like you're kind of envisioning what you would do based on however life currently is. And he said he always had to go several steps beyond that and allow that to work backwards. Like if I go several steps beyond that, I might realize a lot of what we're doing right now doesn't make sense based on that. But if I'm just only thinking six months ahead, how do I make a little incremental change I can always I can keep ba- like certain inefficiencies or things around that wouldn't make sense if I were dreaming from from a bigger vantage point. And it sounds a little bit like that's what you're getting them to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and you know, people like John Durr and others have sort of um institutionalized that kind of thinking with OKRs and things like right. that. You know, that's a modern framework of kind of getting you to think about okay, here's the year now let's break that down into quarter months and task and take that one little incremental step at a time. And that's why those things are so effective. Like that's why so many companies have adopted models like OKRs to do that. But if you think about our industry and you know a lot about it because of your background, it's probably the hardest place to do it because there's such a sense of urgency right in front. Like, am I going to make payroll? Am I going to have enough to fund this program? And, and, you know, they're, even large organizations are sort of living month to month, um, you know, because of constant fundraising and constant, you know, uh, the con- when the economy goes bad or a pandemic happens or something else, um, not everybody has reserves for three or four years right. left, you know, you know.
1: It's like the restaurant industry, man. I mean, the restaurant yeah. industry at best uh, usually has one to 3% margin, you know. And so, yeah. of course, they were decimated. They're the littlest shake to their, you know, to how many customers come in really hits you. And it's the same with nonprofit worlds.
0: Yeah. And then you get into these conversations. Well, yeah, but if I have reserves, that's not right because the need is now. Well, you know, I mean, that's not what Joseph thought. Right. So, (laughs) you know, so you get into all those conversations about, you know, plan for the future versus the, you know, sense of urgency for today. And, and so they get themselves in these cycles. You're right.
1: Yeah. I'd love to just talk about that from a founder standpoint, you know, person to person, as we have founders listening to this. I feel the urgency, you know, at any point, like the, there's the wisdom of the urgency, right? Like to not mm-hmm. ignore what's urgent, but there's also the misleading instincts that sometimes comes from the pressure of the investors or the pressure of feeling like you just needed to arrive yesterday versus playing the long game. How do you balance that? Those kind of dueling energies, if you will.
0: Well, it's, a, it's, again, it's an excellent question. Um, um I like you, I, every morning I I say I wake up and I feel like I'm 30 days behind every morning. I feel like I'm 30 days behind. And, um, you know, that's just kind of how we're wired is, is, is that sense of urgency and probably, probably some of the largest mistakes I've ever been, I've ever made. And I've got counseled on from people much wiser than me is you're not giving things time to bake. Mm. You know, sometimes you have to give things a little more time to bake than you think you should. And it kind of goes against us. Like, Hey, I had this idea. Okay. I'm not seeing results. All right, let's, let's go the other way. Yeah. And, and so you have to, you have to have a, a little bit of patience and insight to sometimes see, um, it, it's kind of like coaches in sports is when they put a process or system in place, yeah. you know, it may not be working on the first two or three series of a game, but if you trust the process, they're always saying, trust the process, trust the process, you know, it'll kind of work itself out. And so I think we have to caution ourselves as a, Sort of top A high energy founders sometimes to let things bake a little bit more.
1: I, I, man, I 100% agree. I have a big sports background. I just remember, especially if you bring a new coach in who's bringing an entirely new system, it might be the entire year that doesn't go the way you want. Yeah. Like the question though is can the donors, can the boosters, can the what, like, can they believe enough in it to go, it's okay. Like we yeah. saw, we saw what we needed to see in that year, even though it wasn't what we wanted, because this is a big change. We're, we're, you know, I think about Georgia tech, I'm not a Georgia tech fan, but I think about them going from the yeah. kind of, uh, you know, option offense for years. That is a very specific kind of offense. And then they decided we're going to go away from that. We want a more traditional offense. Well, you're going to suck for a few years. Yeah. Like, yeah, no yeah, doubt. You're going to have to be okay. And not just go from coach to coach to coach, uh, firing people because you're not getting the wins right away. That's a big change of who you recruit, uh, getting them to understand the game plan, all of that kind of stuff. And business is the same way. And so, it makes me even think about what you were saying earlier. Sometimes I wonder, do we know the, t- the proper time horizon to judge an idea, right? If we're if we're thinking like, hey, let's, like you said, let's set the experiment and let's go find out if, if it's proving out. Well, how long do we wait? You yeah. know, We don't want to be too long, but we also don't want to be too short.
0: Yeah. And this gets into a, a long conversation we don't have time for today, but I mean— I think all of us are guilty of not managing expectations of with investors the right way. I mean, we're so, we're so optimistic and we're, we're so visionary sometimes as founders where, you know, we, we believe we could move mountains in, in a short period of time when sometimes it takes longer and we set expectations and we've lost the battle before we even get started. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the, we understand that, right? We need to have the kind of projections to make sure we get the capital we need, but, I think we can all do a better job of sort of managing those expectations a little bit better because, um, that sometimes not every business is a, is a unicorn and that's okay. There are yeah. great businesses <laughs> and they, they they don't have to be unicorns to be great businesses.
1: Yeah. It's funny that unicorns used to be inherently thought of as rare. And now we think of them as the expectation, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, th- it's inherent in the name unicorn. Like they're not, yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. Not, you're not going to see them often, but we, went through a time where, you know, maybe you had 10 unicorns in a year in, in the tech industry. And um, now people are feeling that pressure of like, if we're not getting a hundred x return, it's a failed business. I'm like, there's still room for just profitable, good growing, yeah. good growth businesses out there. Right.
0: Yeah. And that, that, that was, that was something that was really special about Mr. Koch is, you know, even in the late nineties and early two thousands, when things were absolutely insane, you know, he had the wisdom to kind of step back and say, "Yeah, this is this is all interesting. What people are paying for these companies, and all these companies are going public and and making people, you know, a crazy amount of money. But the laws of business still apply, and at some yeah. point in time, people are going to get back to they need to make a profit because if you're not creating value, you know, then uh, you you make profits by creating value that somebody's willing to pay for, right." And and we'll we'll eventually get there, and we'll I'll meet you at the bottom of the drain. We'll eventually get there, but it's all going to go back to that. And I think we, you know, we just you think can't we're lose seeing that it. now. Yeah, no question, we're seeing a reset. There's no question. Yeah, and the and crazy amount of
1: valuations that were coming out of out of the pandemic in 2020 was just wild.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's still a flat to quality, and there's still great valuations out there for for great businesses, but for everyone else. I think we're definitely going to see a reset and I think profitability is going to be in vogue again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just the fundamentals, you know, yeah. like, is this company able to make
1: more than it spends?
0: Right. 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 Simple right. stuff like
1: that. How much does it cost for you to acquire a customer? How efficient right. are you at doing that? Right. And,
0: and, you know, and if you, if you can't, uh, if you can't make a profit, then obviously what you have is probably not a value unless there's an execution problem.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's what makes me think of WeWork. My wife and I just got done with watching the the WeWork docudrama yeah. thing, and that was a, such an interesting case of like, no, it was providing value, but the way his impatience, his you know, he, just more money, throw more money at, let's just get more real yeah. estate, whatever we have to pay, you know, like, well, well, ten ten, you know, a ten year lease where we're losing money. Yeah. It's like that was such
0: an interesting trap that I think we can fall into of just well. And some, sometimes that's driven by the fact that it wasn't his money either, right. but you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's easy to spend somebody else's money, particularly when it's cheap, you know, and yeah. particularly when valuations are where they are, it makes people irrational.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny when we're talking about like learning, um, learning patience and even like, where, where are you at? Like I have noticed for me, this is not a perfect science, but just in self-reflecting, I'm learning already. I'm 38, 37 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm learning that my natural is I expect things to be somewhere. Uh, and I'm usually, uh, it usually takes twice as long and costs twice as much. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not like a general, that's just like me, like someone else might be 10 times or they might be dead on the money. Where I'm at is I'm saying, like, if I look at the data of my life, it's typically been about twice as long. If I thought it was a year, it was yeah. two years. Yeah. If I thought it was two years, it was four years. And it usually costs about twice as much as I thought. And I'm just trying to update, like yeah. update my instincts, if that makes sense.
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And that, that raises another, another one of these lessons. Uh, you know, I said, there was two things that I learned from, from Charles Koch and, and Koch Industries that or were seared into my, my brain. One, you know, was what we talked about with experiments and, you know, they were really big on value systems there. And the value system that the value that he used to talk about so much, you were talking about that. Is this whole idea of intellectual honesty. And, you know, it's the simple definition is know what you know and know what you don't know. And the fact that it's going to take two years longer, or cost twice as much, that's not the issue. Yeah. As long as you're willing to say, you know what, this is going to take two years longer. It's going to yes. cost twice as much. Um, the issue is when you have an employee that's not willing to admit that or have the humility. And then you wake up two years later and you go, what, what happened? Where are we? I'm out of yes. money. I'm, I had the, the project's over budget because- we can fix the problem and we can help if we know about it, but if you keep it to yourself, you kill companies. Mm. Yeah. What and, do you think,
1: what do you think causes us to keep it to ourselves?
0: Well, it's, it's a character issue. And I, I think that, uh, I I think that we all want to please, we all want to be successful and it's, it's in our human nature to want to do that. And you know, in Coke industries, you, you have people with agriculture degrees running multi-billion dollar factories because Charles knew if something broke, they'd pick up the phone and call and say, "I have a problem. I need help." Well, mm. Charles could fix anything. I mean, or he—he he was one phone call away from anybody who could fix anything. You can—you can work with people like that. It's the person that says, "I got it. I don't need to call. I don't. There's not a problem. I'll take care of it." And then three hundred million dollars later, and you know, twelve months of a plant being down, you have a problem. Man, and, and, and so this intellectual honesty. And you see it, you see it in every business. We struggle with it at I Donate too. It's, you know, like when we're developing technology or something, you know, people don't want to raise their hand. Then, it, then the product comes in six weeks, eight weeks, three months late. Everybody's mad. Everybody's upset. Everybody's looking yeah. for somebody to blame. And, you know, all you need to do is just raise your hand and say, you know, I've ran into a problem. I've lost my two of my key developers or, you know, or we just, we didn't estimate this properly. It's going to, Okay. Well, let's manage around that. Let's let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. We're we're okay. But it's the people that sort of don't speak up or keep that to themselves that kill you. Wow.
1: Man, so I had this founder on who's originally from I think it was Norway, and he's now out of New York because he realized, you know, he, <laughs> he had one business be successful in Norway and then realized if he was actually in a real market, he could create something that much bigger. And so he moved his operations to Norway. But he's got two te- you know, he's got teams that are still kind of in Scandinavia and he's got teams that are here in America. And so I was asking him, where do you see differences? Like where does culture even just Mm -hmm. come in and how you do work, how you communicate, Mm -hmm. whatever. And that's this point right here is what he talked about. He said, if I call the Scandinavian team and I ask for an update and I say any issues that we need to solve, whatever, everyone's raising their hands, you know, Hey, here's what we got Hmm. going on. Help me solve this. Here's what we got going on. He said, if I call the team in America and I say, how's it going? Everyone says good. Yeah. And it's not till later when it's almost too late that someone finally tells him what the issue was and he's like why didn't you tell me this three months ago we yeah. could have got ahead of this we could have helped you solve it and so it was just interesting discussing that i think it's more of a western or at least american That's culture phenomenon I that didn't something's know that. going on that keeps yeah. us, us from feeling the permission or whatever to say help you know, I might, I, we need some help in this department, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And so so I'm just curious what that might be, you know? Yeah,
0: that that's, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's not only a project killer, it's a company killer. Mm.
1: Talk about that. Why, why do you say that? Why is it more than just a project killer?
0: Well, I mean, it could take companies down if you have a, if you have a bunch of people that, that sort of operate like that. I mean, you can, you can run out of capital before you, you know, you finished your MVP or before Mm. you finish your next release. So, um, you know, we think about it oftentimes with projects, but it can be more serious than that. And, uh, you know, sometimes legal or compliance issues come up and people are not willing to say, Hey, there may be an issue here, boss. And, or, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're disbarred or you're cut out from a market or you've got serious legal or, or, or HR issues or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, yeah, it's just, um, you know, and it's interesting that in, in, in my, in companies that I've been involved in, I always talk about this constantly and I reinforce it. And I say over and over again, it's okay to be like those folks in Scandinavia and raise your hand, but it doesn't matter how much I talk about it. People still struggle with it.
1: I know. That's what I'm saying. It's almost, it's gotta be, and it's not unfixable. I think with time and committed commi- communication mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, we could build small teams and slowly it permeate a culture, but mm-hmm. it's going against some kind of cultural grain. Yeah, and I think part of it is the blessing and a curse of having an entrepreneurial country, yeah. where that's why we're advanced in many ways is because we have people that believe they can do it and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Yeah. But at the same time, it can create you know heroic individualism, where yeah. you think you're weak for asking for help, or that you're you know you're going to be vulnerable vulnerable to lose your job if you're the only one in the meeting that's saying, "Hey, sales team needs some help over here," and we've got to figure out how to. To lessen that some,
0: you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I
1: mean, even even with like, I get to work with you know executives and leaders all the time, and much of the time we're talking about burnout. We're talking Mm -hmm. about like just over the long haul. How do you have high performance without overwhelm stress killing you? And Mm -hmm. the reason I use heroic individualism is it comes from I can't find the book. Steve Magnus, I believe, wrote this book, Mm -hmm. and he was that was his term uh, working with athletes and working with executives was this, what he calls heroic individualism. And he said, it's a constant game of one upmanship and it's Mm -hmm. not just against others. It's even against yourself where nothing's ever good enough. Mm -hmm. Yesterday's win is gone tomorrow. You know, what have you Mm -hmm. done for me lately? Mm -hmm. And it creates this never satisfied, never fulfilled, can never relax feeling. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I know it's resonated with a lot of my clients. Do you see that as well? How do you, oh, how yeah, do you combat no that, that kind of feeling? Never enough, never satisfied, never fulfilled.
0: No, there's no question. I mean, I, I'm not good at it because I, I struggle with that in my own life. Um, you, you, you know, you, the old adage, you, you've got to celebrate the little things along the way and you just have to force yourself to do that. And I think that helps. That mm. certainly helps with the team is, uh, you know, cause like all entrepreneurs, we say, well, this is where I want to be. And we're not there yet, and so it's like, well, we we failed. I mean, we're because we're not at where we want to be, and so we sort we sort of live in this cycle every single day of waking up and going, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind, and um, you know, there's a lot in that. It does it wears you out, and and then you're, you know, you don't have vacations. What what are you doing on vacations? You're on email. You're on the phone. You know, and then it then you bring it into the house, and then it affects your family, and and it is just. I think this is where the Europeans have us beat a little bit. I mean, I think they've sort of got that, you know, maybe they're not as productive as us at some things, but they certainly have that balance down a little better. And, you know, the idea of taking a full month off, I I mean, I think there's some wisdom to that. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Even the the idea of a siesta. I remember the first time going somewhere and everybody kind of shut down mid afternoon when it was hot and we're just kind of relaxing or taking naps. I was like, what are y'all doing? I mean, I want to do it, but this is so strange. And, Again,
0: when I went, when I went to, I did one project when I was at EDS and I used to work all over the world with them. And I got assigned to work with a big multinational oil company in Portugal. And of course, you know, there's a difference between Southern Europe and Northern Europe and Southern, sure. it was in Southern Europe. And I remember when I showed up there, I was the guy that's supposed to be driving the project home. When I showed up, um, and I showed up at the office, well, nobody came in until about 10, 30 or 11. And then when they came, I said, well, let's go to lunch. You know, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We don't go to lunch till three. I go three. <laughs> so they'd go They'd go to lunch at three. They'd have a glass of wine or something with their lunch or whatever. They'd sit around. They'd come back in the office for a few hours until, you know, they'd, they'd stay around till seven or eight. Then they'd go out and have dinner and dance till like 10 or 11 or 12 every night. Yes. Then they'd come back in the office the next day, about 10 or 11. And, you know, and I was sitting there going, no, I mean, beer at eight eight eight, eight a.m. And let's go and let's go. and." you know, no, that's not how we do things around here.
1: Yeah. And if you try to convince somebody right now, if you try to convince your, your team or an executive to do that, they're not going to do it because that's not our culture. And it's, it's almost too far. It's like too far the other way, Yeah, But, but we can make small changes, like learn from the example and say, but when are we off? Yeah. Like when are we saying enough is enough or we can be satisfied or the day is done? Like, I mean, even my wife will catch me sometimes where she can tell I'm here, but I'm not here. Because even if I'm not looking at email, it's like, I might be in here trying to solve a problem or think about tomorrow and she'll, she'll say, Hey, either be
0: there or be here. Like wherever you are in your head. They must, they must be sisters. I get the same speech all the time. So she's like, do you need to go to
1: your office? I'd rather you go to your office for 10 minutes and get done what you're doing and then come back and be here, but either be there or be here. And I'm like, man, some of the boundaries are just even internal. Like, when do you have the faith that everything's going to be okay? Or that I've done enough today that I can just you know, change gears. Right. Yeah. So I think we can learn that.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. And, you know, and and this, I don't want to open up sort of Pandora's box on this, but it gets exacerbated, at least for me. And maybe it's because I'm old school, but this, this environment we're in now with remote work, um, you know, I'm all for it and I think it's productive and there's places that it can apply, but it's just, for me, it's made it a challenge and a little more difficult to sort of celebrate you know, face-to-face some of these, these things. Like, you know, when we used to win a deal, you know, we used to go over and ring the bell and everybody would stand up and, you know, we'd order it, we'd order in cookies and ice cream or whatever, and people would all be together and we'd celebrate things and we'd kind of keep a little momentum going and we'd bring in pizza and we'd do different things as a team. And, you know, it's, it's really challenging to kind of create some of that sort of interpersonal momentum and culture in today's world. Yeah. It's really challenging. I I wish I had it all figured out. I don't. I'm I'm always trying to study what people are doing to do that. But uh, I don't I think, think anybody does.
1: I think we're on the early I, curve I, of that change.
0: I I think we're hurting a little bit for not having that you know balance a little bit more. Yeah,
1: I think we we're rightfully so celebrating the advantages. Uh, almost like acceptance therapy. You gotta just have to yeah. accept that this is the way the world is now, and so we're like, okay, but in these ways, it's amazing. But You know just two examples i can think of that that i think you would resonate with uh so in the companies we work with one i was doing a training on on some stuff and what i heard from them is hey we've hired a lot of people since the pandemic since we've moved to remote work Mm -hmm. and we're noticing that the speed of trust is much slower between the newer people than the people that Mm -hmm. we used to work with you know every day and i'm like well that makes sense because if you were around someone every day you just can't help but to almost naturally as a human pick up more trust when you've spent little moments together, big moments together, in between moments together versus the one that you still haven't met in person.
0: No, there's it, no doubt. I my son just started to graduate from college and started a new job and they allowed them to work remotely or in the office. And I said, "You know, for the first 6 months, son, just go to the office every day." I mean, yes. you know, if you if you want to do a Friday or something like that. But these kids today, you're 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 so right. They don't even have the chance to build relationships with their colleagues, yes, and 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 I know you know this, but particularly in the world of innovation, where you're sitting around and you've got the peanut m and ms and sweethearts out and you're on the whiteboard and you're strategizing, well, the real genius and value doesn't always come in the room. It comes when you get up and you walk down the hall to go get a hamburger across That's the street, right. yeah, because you that continuous conversation allowing you to kind of process what you just talked about. Is where the genius comes. And, and you can't, you know, I think of songwriters all the time. I have a lot of friends in the music business. You know, it's it's sure they go lock the door and they sit in a room, but that's not where all the genius comes. It comes yep. in these moments of inspiration.
1: They're in the car and they pull their phone out and do a voice memo. Like it just yeah. hits them, you know?
0: Or they, see, or they see something and it inspires them. And I don't know how you manufacture inspiration and innovation, jumping on a Zoom and talking to somebody for an hour, then saying, leave meeting. I, yeah. I just don't know how to do that. I know? mean, that
1: literally this literally just happens. So, uh, I have about six or seven of our best friends. We go every year on a trip together. We go to the same place in Mexico. We surf and we play golf. Mm. Uh, it's just we we've all been close since high school and life and busyness, you know, separated us. And so we made a commitment to once a year do this together. And two of them are big songwriters. Mm. And we were on the trip just being guys you know, playing playlists while we played golf and whatever and I, we were on the car right back from the airport, kept listening to the song I showed them. And I was like, I wish y'all wrote something like this that made me feel like this. <laughs> and the two of them looked at each other and they're like, why don't we? Like mm-hmm. it was a different genre than they've ever played in. And they were like, yeah. I-, I love this music. And now they're writing their first song together, you know, just mm. based off of hanging out, being and being like, that's a moment I'd love to give people. I'd like to yeah. make them feel like this, you know? Um, the other thing I noticed in business, again, we think of it as, how big a deal is it if you don't have this deep personal trust or knowing of me? But I, see, I get to see it when people are asking in a coaching session mm-hmm. and they say, this thing happened and I believe it's because this person had this intention, right? Mm-hmm. And it breaks down and you start realizing it had nothing to do with the, the A's, you know, the X's and O's of the conversation. It has to do with you think they're the kind of person that would do that kind of thing your suspicion your assumptions about a person's character really is so much easier if you've never met them yeah it's easy for you to say they left me out on purpose it's easy it. oh they're angling around me they're doing politics yeah. all that is heightened when you know someone you go well they wouldn't do that to me this must be a right. miscommunication you right. know and that right. i'm seeing that pop up like crazy right now where all this kind of drama and and conspiracy theory in their head about people cuz you just don't know them yeah you never yeah, share a meal together
0: and, and no and and not look like everybody's not brilliant at writing emails and slack messages with right. the right tone every 5 minutes. I mean, right. let's just face it. I mean, we're we're all guilty of not being perfect to do that. But like you said, if you have this foundation of trust between somebody, you know, you won't always read that context into it. You know, it's like, okay, well they're in a hurry or they're having a bad day or whatever, but I've That's got this foundation. I got this foundation to go back to because I, you know, I know who you are.
1: Yeah. You're like, Hey, they're stressed or they're hungry yeah. or whatever. And whatever. Yeah. They didn't mean that, you know? Yeah. Um, and the other thing, tell me if you've seen this and if you have any solutions, please tell me, but someone brought this up last week in Tennessee when I was doing this training, and I asked them, what's the biggest issue you're having right now with sustainability and all that kind of stuff. And it, we were talking about rhythms. We were talking about on and off, you know, and they fell mm-hmm. on all the time and they said, it's been heightened since I work at home. I said, okay, cool. Tell me more about that. And they said, well, I, at least, even though I hated traffic and I hated the commute, I'm glad I don't have that. It mm-hmm. represented a transition. Like a, I had, yeah. I geared up for work as I went yep. there. And then I kind of naturally geared down on the drive back. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're like, my world is all the same. Like when I walk out of my room and I'm in my house, it's hard for me to gear into work. And then at the end of the day, it's hard for me to get out of it because I've been here all day. And so my mind just naturally keeps going to work.
0: That's, Have you experienced it, that? Some, yeah, it's a great insight. As a matter of fact, a, a big private equity group that manages, you know, almost a hundred businesses, I, I I know one of the partners well, and they actually studied during the pandemic this issue deeply by measuring everything in their businesses, and they found out during the pandemic, they measured availability, productivity, and something else, but availability was off the charts. Yeah, you know, in other words, people were always available; they were always online. Yes, and and even after the pandemic, they found that while productivity has actually waned and is off availability is still high. And you're right. I mean, I, I remember during the pandemic, you know, we, we started, you know, on the, on the computer in the morning and I, I can remember, you know, going in there, making myself a sandwich, bringing it back to my desk and all of a sudden it'd be seven or eight o'clock and I'd still be working. Yes. You know, and I think there's a carryover from that. Uh, You're right. I mean, I used to get in the car and I'd listen to a podcast or some good music to put me in the right frame of mind or, Mm -hmm you know, or inspire me or whatever the case may be. And then the same thing on the way home or, or call a friend or something like that. And now it's, you know, you know, we still, we have a little bit of a hybrid, but you're right. You get up from the desk and you walk into their room and your spouse is there or whatever. And, and you, well, I can see your mind still spinning. Awesome. You
1: know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. we're creatures like yeah, we are creatures and we need almost like symbolism. We need transition. Like I had one mentor that told me what he used to do to help him was when he'd drive home, he'd sit in the driveway before going in with wife and kids. And he would try to close any open loops, like yeah. any, any last communication, quick ones. Like uh, I need to send an email back or whatever. And then he would look in the mirror that day. You wore a suit and, t- suit and tie and he would take his tie off. And it was like a little ritual he went through. that was like, I'm almost changing uniforms, yeah. which means <laughs> I'm stepping sense. out of this role and I'm stepping into this role as dad, as husband, like, and he's, and I'm like, man, like I'm wearing what I worked out in this morning because that's the benefit of being virtual, yeah. but yeah. I don't have that symbolism of I was in this role and now I'm symbolizing I'm in, I'm in this role, you know? And so I think any uh, way we can experiment with that is going to be helpful. moving forward.
0: I think that's right. I, I went to an event, uh, with Disney, um, I was at a conference and this was kind of the tail end of the pandemic or the big part of it. And they used to say to their employees, look, if you're going to, if you're going to be online or you're going to be remote, you're going to dress the same way you do when you come to work. And you're even going to have your name tag on. And, you know, they sort of had that discipline that, hey, this is, this is your work uniform. This is what you're going to wear if you're going to be on Zoom.
1: I think that's helpful. Like I'm all for, I mean, again, I'm as creative a person as possible. I'm all for creative expression. I also like the simplicity when I played sports about having a uniform. Yeah. There was some part of me that was like I'm now in this mode. I'm in athlete yeah. mode. I'm in whatever uh, versus my school clothes. I'm here to learn. I'm here to whatever. And so even that I've had, I've like reduced my outfits to just a few to, yeah. to to be like this is kind of what symbolizes work to yeah. me, and this is what symbolizes yeah. play to me, and
0: you know that we, kind we, of thing. We, we we become a hoodie jogger world. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> Again, I'm all for progress. I think this right. we're just having the real conversation of. What we need to address if we're going to keep going this direction, it's going to take years, I think, of us having these kind yeah. of conversations to figure out what the new world looks like and what mixture of home and an office and how do we, you know, negate the downside as best we can and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's again a conversation from the other day, but I think there's some, I've thought a lot about some different interesting models to where maybe we don't have the big office of 50 or 60 or 100 people in the same office. Maybe, Maybe we have clusters scattered around sort of a metro area where groups can come in and, you know, and meet and have all the high technology to do high performing meetings and things like that. But, yeah. you know, the the day of the 100 person office may be over, but I still think sort of having clusters and different kind of workspace where you get teams in and, and at least you can develop relationships on a, maybe a, a, a more a smaller functional level would be helpful. But somebody's going to figure somebody's going to figure all that out.
1: I think you're onto something. My my
0: brother-in-law works
1: at Chick-fil-A corporate Mm -hmm. and they've been doing something similar. I don't know if they started after the pandemic before it, but you know, if you work for corporate, you'd always go to the main headquarters, which is Mm -hmm. massive, you know, almost Mm -hmm. like Google, Google kind of thing, massive headquarters, but you know, it's a far drive for him. It's a, it's a lot of traffic, whatever. And a lot of his team felt the same way. At some point they created one more in Atlanta near him and it's a smaller office. It's kind of an offsite thing, but his whole tech team, they either work from home or they meet there and it's got set up for all the same kind of capabilities for meeting rooms and whatever, but it's only meant to house, like you said, less than a hundred people.
0: You know? Yeah. I think that, I think there's something to that because you could, you could geo map your entire team in a Metro area and find out, okay, I need three clusters and, and you know, with the WeWorks, Mm. the world and things like that, you can do that, but I need three, three or four clusters. And then it, they get in the discipline of okay, two or three days a week, I'm going to get up, I'm going to put my uniform on, I'm yeah. going to lace up my cleats, and I'm going to go into the office. I'm going to have all the tech there. Yep. Um, and you know, and then maybe the headquarters becomes a real small office just to have a nice customer event or something like that. But I think um, I think
1: you're onto something. I think that's definitely yeah. I would I would prefer that future. You still got the option. Hey, it makes sense for us to take Mondays and Fridays at home, but Tuesdays through Thursdays or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we need that, to be together. W-
0: that was our, before the pandemic, that was our agenda. We, 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 we had that model and I can tell you it worked fantastic before the mm. pandemic. People loved the virtual Monday Fridays. Yeah.
1: But again, too much of either is you're like, oh, I don't want to be and, there all the time or too much and at I home. Used to,
0: yeah. I used to debate with people. They said, well, well, what about Tuesday, Thursdays or Monday, Wednesday? And I go, no, no, no. I want two or three days of continuity together. Yeah. Yeah. So at least I had continuity. At least there was a thread That I was going to come back uh, and work with my colleagues for a couple of days in a row. I wasn't going to just space this thing out. I like that. Uh, So you
1: you guys put those together. So while you were together, they would be back to back. Yeah. And then either bookend or afterwards would be the the days at home. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Because like you said, you might have the next thought that you need to keep that conversation going the very next day or you might lose it or, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could, you can do a lot of innovation or, you know, over two or three days if you're, if you're back to back. So. Uh, that well, way, you could lead into a little after-work dinner or whatever you want to do, and just kind of keep things going. But anyway, man, this I, is super I'm, helpful. I'm waiting for somebody to figure that out and just give me the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, tell me this: if we have people listening uh, that would be the type of people that would benefit from your service, uh, who would they be, and 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 uh, who should I point to your direction?
0: Yeah, no, in, in any nonprofit. Uh, you know, I think we tend to vector towards those that sort of have a digital aptitude or really care about digital giving or digital marketing because uh, that's the business we're in. And, and, you know, we've built a system that's really not just for processing a gift online. There's lots of tools that do that, but really for more executing a playbook. So if somebody thinks about their digital marketing, digital uh, fundraising in a strategic way, hmm. we have something really special that can facilitate that.
1: Heck yeah. And where do we send them?
0: idonate.com. There it is. You got
1: .com. That's always, yeah. that's not a given anymore.
0: <laughs> no, no, we're .com.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, last question we like to ask every person on the podcast is, is there a favorite book that you would recommend to our audience? It can be business, it can be life, it mm-hmm. can be anything in between.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, from a business standpoint, I, I still love the old Gary Hamill book on Blue Ocean. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read that or not, but yep. you know, I just, I just love this very simplistic idea that you know, if you if you write your own rules, you can win the game, mm-hmm. and you know, and you you can sit there and cut yourself up in, in a red ocean with everybody else, yeah. and so I, I really like the sort of the liberation thinking of, you know, am I going to do that or am I going to kind of move over here and, and rewrite the rules mm-hmm. a little bit and. So that's always been somewhat inspirational to me when I'm thinking that's about that, business.
1: That's that maverick part of your personality. I yeah, like I guess that. so. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right though. In the Red Ocean, often you find yourself just competing for the cheapest, which is no, yeah, it's, no fun. It's
0: a, it's a race to a bottom and yeah, it's a race to commoditize things. And that's not where value is created. I love it.
1: Ray, this is awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on here and sharing your heart, your mission, and your wisdom with us. It has been greatly appreciated.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me founders thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results